Christmas holiday season, there are many pious families who long to gather their little ones around and talk about the meaning of the first advent. And some do it during Holy Week of Easter. It's a time when we have the opportunity, not only in the realm or among the family of believers, but even in our own culture, to focus on great events of the Christian faith. And our faith is based on great events. So it's the opportunity to uh, catechize, is a word that is sometimes used, to ask questions of little ones, or to have the little ones ask questions, and to answer those questions, to get into the heart of the season, and to understand the real meaning of the season. It was interesting that this practice is very Jewish, and was repeated during every important Jewish festival. That is, they would gather together from all of their own houses and descend upon Jerusalem, and it would be a long week of festivities, and part of that would be the teaching of the rabbis taking place in Solomon's portico where questions were being asked, sometimes by the rabbis and sometimes by the people. It was a time of Q&A. And some Bible scholars feel that that is exactly what is happening during Passover week in Mark chapter 11 and chapter 12, the final week before Jesus is crucified on Friday. So let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to Mark's Gospel chapter 11. And we want to look at a few more questions this morning. Perhaps these questions of preparation that get the mind and the heart into the spirit of the season in that day, Passover, and allows people to think deeply about life's most important questions. Questions about God and your relationship to him. Uh, the first question, actually there was a, a series of four questions. The first was way back in chapter 11, verse 28, you might remember after Jesus had cleansed the temple, <clears throat> when they came back Tuesday morning, they said to Jesus, who gave you the authority? By what authority are you doing these things? Whether it's the cursing of the fig tree, whether it's the cleansing of the temple. And then a little later on, chapter 12, verse 23, the question was, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? So the first, indeed, was a question of who's in charge. The second was a question that was aimed politically uh, at the situation, but it had strong religious overtones. Now, this morning, we want to look at questions three and four, if you're numbering them, one, two, three, and four. But for us, we'll be looking at questions one and two in Mark's Gospel. And this is chapter 12, verse 18. It's also interesting to note that the questions came from different groups of people, right? Teachers of the law, the lawyers, the chief priests, the Herodians. And now we have a group called the Sadducees, verse 18. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children... 
The man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, this indeed is a Mosaic law. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 25. It was a law that was uh, actually practiced among many different cultures. It was called the law of the Levir, which means brother-in-law. And it was just this, that if uh, a brother, if a man died, didn't have any offspring, and he had a brother, that brother was to marry his wife and then produce children for the family. Um, the brothers had to live together, though, in the same home. That was an important feature, not mentioned here in this story. So the Sadducees come to Jesus, and by the way, this is an antagonistic question, and the question really hinges on the whole question of life after death. But we know the Sadducees don't believe in life after death, but they're going to ask a question to Jesus about life after death, again, hoping to trap him in his words. The Sadducees are an interesting group of people. They're um, aristocratic and wealthy, not as large and influential as the Pharisees, but certainly a ruling group in that particular day. The only time they're mentioned in all the Gospel of Mark is right here in chapter 12. They appeared at times to compromise with the Romans for political gain. And theologically, they would be called the liberals. As it states here, they don't believe in the resurrection. The Apostle Paul later will state in Acts chapter 23 that they don't believe in the resurrection, nor in angels, nor in spirits, while the Pharisees believe in all three. And so... These groups are divided theologically. These are the liberals. Now, they come up with a hypothetical. This is rather interesting in verse 20. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow as he was supposed to, but he died leaving no children. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died. I can imagine so. In fact, I would want to check that woman out if she's been married to seven guys and they keep dropping off. Sounds like a case for CSI. But anyhow, uh, the situation here is a hypothetical and indeed a ridiculous hypothetical put forth by people who don't believe in the resurrection. But their goal is this. The design of the question is to make the belief in the resurrection so absurd as to be ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. If seven guys had her as their wives in this world and they die and there is a resurrection, who's going to get her? Now, it's very interesting to note that the Pharisees answered the question. The first guy gets her, <laughs> but was wrong answer. But Jesus is going to respond in a very interesting way. The law was designed to perpetuate the name of the family and to keep the property of the eldest and the inheritance of the family in the family name. But these guys, with an air of superiority, are asking the question in such a way so as to trip Jesus up. They want to render the concept of the resurrection ludicrous. And by the way, that's the way cults often work. 
those who are antagonistic. That's often the way they approach religious questions. They think of the most far-fetched possibility and try to discredit the whole by taking something out of proportion. Also, this is a warning to you and I that we can take biblical truth, like this law that was clearly in Deuteronomy 25, and take it to a ridiculous end and thereby try to deny clear teaching in Scripture. I think many theologies have gone far philosophical from a, well, a decent start in biblical teaching to the point where they have developed a cult and a teaching that cannot be biblical. I heard one theologian put it this way, man has the ability to think logically to the wrong conclusion. And so you and I take a Bible truth and we say, wow, that's really good. And from that Bible truth, we come to what, what we might call a first-generation conclusion. And that's good. We need to apply the scripture. But then sometimes from our first-generation conclusion, we'll make a second-generation conclusion. And from that second generation, a third. And on to the fourth. And when you get to the fourth generation, you take that conclusion all the way back to the truth of scripture, and you find out they're in conflict. There's no harmony because we have the ability to think logically and philosophically and come up with the wrong answer. So Jesus responds, verse 24, and he says this, Are you not in error because you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God? Wow, what a rebuke. Wrong, Jesus said. He said it in a kinder way than that, but you guys are way off base. And it's important to note, verse 23 tells us that ignorance is behind every error. And prejudice, this lack of information, you are in error, you've come to the wrong conclusions for two reasons. You don't know the truth of Scripture, and secondly, you don't believe that God has the power to do whatever he wants to do. You don't believe his word and you don't trust his power. And liberal theologians discredit the teaching of Scripture. They study it, but they don't believe it, <clears throat> just like the Sadducees. And they deny that miracles happen. What they do is that they, they see that in this closed system, as they call it, this closed system on earth, that there are certain laws that govern us, like the law of gravity. And that cannot be superseded unless by another law of man. And so nothing that man can do can be outside of this closed system. There are no miracles that intervene. And we are in serious error when we took, take a look at life and project our findings, our limitations, our weak, puny, finite understandings, we project all of that on God, which is what liberal, liberal theologians do. So you are in error if you don't know the scripture, and you are in error if you don't trust God's almighty, unlimited power. 
And then Jesus makes a couple points. First of all, he talks about the nature of life in eternity. When the dead rise, and they do, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels. In other words, you understand, need to understand that the old physical laws of this life are no longer going to be enforced in eternity. It's a whole different game. <clears throat> it's a different set of rules. Our view of heaven is too earthbound. Now, the Pharisees didn't believe in all the, or the Sadducees didn't believe in all the scriptures. They believed in the first five books of Moses. And so they took their question from Deuteronomy, one of the first five books of Moses. But they didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in the writings. They didn't believe in the books of poetry or the oral traditions. All of those things they denied. And Jesus said, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures. You're not embracing all that's biblical and even what is biblical that you say is biblical, you don't understand. One of the greatest problems with America today is biblical ignorance. We don't know the scriptures. Let me say it this way. One of the greatest problems with Bible-believing churches is biblical ignorance. We think we know the scriptures and we don't. We've made projections and philosophical conclusions based on what we think we know, but it all doesn't come together. It's dangerous for us to think that heaven is going to be heaven when we can only conceive of it in earthly terms. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, eye has not seen, ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man all the things that God has prepared for us. Now he's revealed some of those things to us, Paul says, but not all of it. And there is so much about heaven we don't know. I remember talking to a man who had had a great marriage with a dear woman for many, many years, and she passed away. And the man said something like this to me, as I recall. He said, Pastor, is she going to be my wife in heaven? And I referred to this section of scripture. No, it's going to be a little bit different. And he said, I don't want to go there if she's not going to be my wife. Now, that was a nice feeling, wasn't it? It's a nice expression of love and devotion. But it's based on ignorance. Yeah, but I love my wife so much that heaven couldn't be heaven if we weren't married. I'm telling you that your view of heaven is too earthbound and when you get to heaven, your relationship with that woman is going to be even better. I can't believe it. Yeah, that's the point. Ignorance. Unbelief. And so we've got to step back and say it's a mystery. We're going to be like the angels, Jesus said. Does that mean we're going to have wings? I don't know. Does that mean that we're going to be sexless beings? I don't think the Bible says for sure that the angels are. But it means that things are going to be different. And they're even going to be better. And there'll be nothing in heaven you'll miss if it would make heaven less than heaven. You'll be changed. You'll be the best you. And it's an amazing thing. 
but it's going to be totally different and perfect. The nature of life in eternity is different. But then he also says the nature of God and his relationship to his people is extremely different too. For he says, I want you to understand that you're going to be like the angels in heaven, but now about the rising of the dead. Have you not read in the book of Moses? What a rebuke to them. This is their favorite book, their only book, the book of Moses. Haven't you read? Of course they have, but they read it but didn't get it. And he's quoting from Exodus chapter 3, the account of the bush, how God said to, him, to Abraham, I'm the God of Abraham, or said to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Don't you remember reading that? Now please understand this. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. He is not the, he is not the one who was the God of Abraham. He is the God of Abraham. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have turned to dust, he is no longer presently their God. If the people he gave a covenant promise to that he would protect them and of life forevermore, and he didn't stand up to that promise, there was a breach of contract, then he is not the God that he said he was. In fact, the, the phrase that he uses most often repeated throughout the Old Testament, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And hundreds of years later, this is quoted now in New Testament times. He is still the God of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham is living at that very moment. And so is Isaac and so is Jacob. It would be ludicrous to say that the God who says, I am, would be the God of those who are not. And in the promise of God's eternality is the wonderful promise that all who trust him will live with him forevermore. And Jesus quotes from their own book, the book of Exodus, the writings of Moses, to prove that they are mistaken. In fact, notice the last part of verse 20, 27. You are badly mistaken. And any theologian that does not believe that the Bible is the word of God is badly mistaken. Anyone who takes the Bible, only parts of it, and doesn't take the whole of it, is badly mistaken. Anyone who projects their own understanding and their own desires upon the sacred text is badly mistaken. We must come to this book and say, Lord, teach me ancient words, ever true, changing me and changing you. That's what the Bible is intended to do. It's a book of transformation. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is and in a world where there is no truth, people are saying, in a world where truth is changing, so people say, we have a rock. And we have the truth forever settled in heaven. It is the word of God. Now my understanding of it may grow and change and improve, but the word never changes. 
And that's why it's so exciting to dig into it and to understand it and to build your life upon it because when you do, you're building your life on the solid rock, the solid ground, Christ Jesus. That's quite a rebuke, isn't it? You are badly mistaken. Now, in the first five books of Moses, it is true that there's not a lot said about the resurrection. But Jesus shows that it is there, implied by the very name of God. But you can go throughout the Old Testament, like in Daniel chapter 12, and it clearly talks about the resurrection, or throughout the Psalms, where it talks about being in the presence of God forever. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, Psalm 23 ends. And many a soul has cast their anchor upon that wonderful promise and faced death with comfort. Because our God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Which means when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you begin to live. There's a sense in which you weren't living. When you come into this world, you are alive physically, but you are dead spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2, we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are born again. We're born a second time. And now we began to live. And what is eternal life? John chapter 17 says eternal life is that we might know him. And the moment we come into a saving relationship with him is the moment we begin to grow, to live and grow, and we never die. Because he is the God, not of the dead, he is the God of the living. So may darkness be dispelled in your mind and mine. When we have believed something that is not true, may it be dispelled by the light of God's word which means I've got to get into this book every day and I've got to do a little work and study and I've got to listen and apply every day or else the blessing of this book will not be mine. And you don't have to be a theologian. You have to have an honest heart, an open heart, and a disciplined life to get into the book and to grow. But I want you to notice that right after this question, there was a second question. And this question is kind of similar because now this is a question about life before death. The first was about life after death. Now, life before death. The first question was antagonistic. This question is really honest, open, sincere. Verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came, heard them debating, He noticed Jesus had given them good answers. He gave a good answer to the Herodians, a good answer to the elders and chief priests, a good answer answer to the Sadducees. Many of those questions, those questions designed to trip him up, and he stumped them all with amazing wisdom. And so now here's one who teaches the law. He heard them debating, and he asked the question, of all of the commandments, which is the most important one that's a good question by the way that's one of the hot topics of the day the first question what about life after death one of the hot topics of the day and now this question what's the meaning of life 
What's the essence of life? When all is said and done, can we reduce life to one great statement? People are still asking those questions today. And Jesus gives, of course, an amazing answer. He said the most important one, thus he puts priority on his first answer, the most important one, and he quotes again from the Old Testament, this time the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second commandment is like the first, love. But this time, love your neighbor as you love yourself, which is a command taken out of Leviticus 19. There is no commandment greater than these. I think it's Matthew who says on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is one of the most beautiful summaries of all the commands of God. We have a tendency, especially in religious circles, to keep adding law upon law upon law. Well, I suppose it's true politically, isn't it? That we just keep adding law upon law upon law till you get to the place where you don't even understand what laws were written before. You can't remember them nor understand them and certainly difficult to obey them. And so it's always been the tendency, instead of expanding, for the great teachers to reduce. And Jesus does that. All you need is love. It wasn't the Beatles who came up with that for the first time. All you need is love. Talking about different loves, to be sure. But love is the answer. All the world needs now is love. Yeah, that's true, but it's a little different kind of love. You have to understand that God is the source of love, and it starts with him. Love him with everything you've got. That is the greatest commandment. And the second is really united to it. It can't be separated because you can't love God and hate people because they're made in his image. In fact, it says here you ought to love people around you like you love yourself. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought I wasn't supposed to love myself. Well, it means that you shouldn't live for yourself completely. You shouldn't love, love yourself in the foremost position. That's God's position. But it's impossible not to love yourself unless something is drastically wrong with your mind. Self-love, we're really good at. We get up every day saying, how can I love myself today? We don't say that, but we do that. And we do what we think will minister to us and encourage us, and whatever we think will bless us, that's what we do. We are committed to loving ourselves, and it's so wise for Jesus to say, you know how you love yourself? Why don't you just love others the same way? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. St. Augustine took all of this theology once and in his writings, in an era 
where they were listing all of the laws, added laws, uh, to the requirements and to the behavior of those who were believers. In the context that the Pharisees added 613 laws to the Ten Commands of God, Augustine said this, love God with all your heart and do whatever you want. I like that. Now, if you have a bit of Pharisee in you, you say, oh no, you can't tell people to do whatever they want to do. Well, if they love God with all of their heart, you can. If they are truly loving God with all of their heart, then whatever they want to do after that will be honoring and pleasing to him. And so Jesus reduces it in an amazing way. It's kind of like Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. What does God require of us? To do justly? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. There it is in three statements. Jeremiah boils it down to two. Jesus brings it down really to one, love. Love for God and love for others. And I'm to love others because I'm to love everything that reflects his image. For Jesus' sake, I'm to love others. Well, notice the response, verse 32. Well said, teacher. This individual who was the teacher of the law responds to Jesus, good answer. You're right in saying that God is one, that there is no other but him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and all of the sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered so wisely, he gave him a commendation. To the first, he gave him rebuke. That is, to the Sadducees, he rebuked them. You're in error. You're, you're badly mistaken. But to this guy, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What is the difference between being badly mistaken, and close to the kingdom? Think about it. Scriptural ignorance, you're badly mistaken. Scriptural knowledge, you're not far from the kingdom. Now, being not far from the kingdom implies that you could be far, right? Some people are very far from the kingdom of God. I would submit to you it's those people who don't even want to come to church and don't even want to read their Bible and don't even want to think about spiritual things, although they have to at times. They try to drive it out of their minds. Or those, when they hear spiritual things, could care less. Ignorance of the Scripture. You're badly mistaken, and you're far away from God's kingdom. But if you know the truth, and the truth has somehow grabbed hold of your soul. You're not far, but being close is not in. So it's possible to be far, and it's possible to be close, and still not be in. I, I would like to think that the rest of this story, the epilogue, goes something like this. The lawyer bowed his head and said, Lord, Forgive me, I'm a sinner. Save me by your grace. 
like that tax collector did who went to the temple to pray, beating his breast, didn't even look up into heaven because he knew he was a sinner. That person went away justified. And I'd like to think that's what happened here. But the story is open. It's like the Aesop fable, you know, where you come to the end and open up the door and you don't know whether it's death or life. Because there are a lot of people sitting here this morning who are badly mistaken concerning the most important question of all, life after death. And badly mistaken because they've not embraced the scripture and they don't understand, they don't believe it. But some of you do believe, but you may not be in. What gets a person in? Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been looking at some very important questions. And we need to ask ourselves some tough questions. Do we fit in more with the Pharisees or the, and the Sadducees and the Herodians who were asking trick questions simply to try to make Jesus look foolish? Or Lord, are we kind of like this teacher of the law who was honestly seeking and had some degree of understanding and was close. Oh Lord, I pray that some by faith will step in to the household of faith by believing in Jesus today. In his name we pray, amen.